Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Moving on to chapter 5 this week. The title is Monotheism and Divine Agency in John, a Christology of Indwelling Unity. And last time we talked about some of the Pauline writings and Luke's view, or whoever the author of Acts is, generally attributed to Luke, I guess, their view on this whole concept of the book of the two powers in heaven, meaning God and his chief agent or vizier, as we've been speaking about. And as you can tell from the title, we're going to be talking specifically about the Gospel of John. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this, but I'll just briefly sum this up so I can bring everyone up to speed. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels, and they are similar, and they probably draw on similar sources as well as on one another. Then there's the Gospel of John, which was probably not written until almost 100 years after Christ. And this gospel includes stories that were not included in any of the others, and so from that you can tell that it either relied on another source or just was a different school of thought. And this school of thought is known among scholars as Johannine, so this is a school of thought more than a specific author. So as all gospels are, you know, most of them are attributed to a specific author, but if you note, they never really say in the text, like, I... John wrote this book, or I, Luke, wrote this, or whatever. Also, like, the book of Revelation is also from this Johannine thought. Yeah, by that, let me let me clarify just a bit, the Johannine world. Most scholars, and, and I would follow the majority of scholars, but in particular Raymond Brown, who I think is the best Johannine scholar that's ever existed, in the thought that this is a book, it's really three and a half sources, if you will, that are brought together. They're all works of a common community that honored John the Beloved, the Apostle of Christ, and they present themselves as him in the sense that they represent his thought world, they understand his teachings. But the Gospel of John is very different from the Synoptics. The Gospel of John is organized around the Passovers, and there are three of them in the Gospel of John. So the time frame in which it takes to complete Christ's ministry in John is three years, whereas in the Synoptics it's one year. And the thought world that we enter into in John is miles away from the kind of thought world that we had in the synoptics. In the synoptics, Jesus, for instance, does exorcisms. He doesn't do exorcisms in John. And the way that he speaks in John is very distinctive, very different. And most people would regard John as having been written about 90 AD, very late in the first century. That doesn't mean that John is never a good source of historical material. There are some pericopes in the Gospel of John, which I would regard as more authentic than most of the Synoptic Gospels. But that's just kind of a background of what we're looking at. And we're, we're looking at a very different kind of work from the three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we're dealing with a very distinct worldview as a practical matter. All right, great. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to go over there in the intro. And again, lots of people know this, but yeah, John is kind of set apart from the other Gospels in its thought world. So one of the main things that, well, first off, I guess, as well, is among scholars, at least, John contains what is known as a high Christology. So 
I don't know if you remember, we talked about this a little bit, but there's high Christology, meaning Christ literally is a God and very divine, whereas there's low Christology, whereas Christ is like maybe a prophet that's been exalted to a divine status or just some sort of higher status. It's the same as like Abraham or Moses, whereas in John, being a high Christology, he's God in the Godhead. I mean, maybe not specifically like in a Trinity type thing, but he's of the same level as God on his right hand. So first thing we want to talk about is the very beginning of John, because that's where a lot of the distinction comes from. And I'll kind of quote it, and then we'll, I'll start reading the quotes that I got from the book here. So if you recall, it starts out saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh, later it says. So the Word, uh, it comes from a Greek word known as logos. And there's a whole bunch of meaning behind that that we're going to talk about, but I'll just start with the quoting here. So, the most fully developed view of Jesus as God is found in the Gospel of John. The prologue of the Gospel of John adapts the category of wisdom as a quasi-personified deity that reveals God in word and act, the Logos, the Word of God. The Alexandrian Jew Philo uses the concept of the word Logos in a way that appears, at first blush at least, to be very close to John's word, or Logos, although it is unknown whether Philo's writings were available in Palestine in the late first century when John was written. So, I have a bunch of quotes here, but let's just have you kind of talk about who is Philo, when, when did he live, and a lot of scholars will see that, you know, if they didn't have reference to Philo's writings specifically, the, the people that wrote John, then they definitely were in a similar thought world, or a similar school of thought that has common influences or something like that, because they're very similar concepts, though we're going to point out some very in, important distinctions as well. So tell us about Philo a bit and his views. Philo comes from Alexandria, which of course is in Egypt, but it is controlled by the Greeks. And Philo has been trained in Greek philosophy. Philo's writing at about the same time that the Gospel of John is being written, or just before that, and he is using categories. In fact, in our own worldview, we would say that Philo is kind of like a postmodernist in that you can't really speak directly about the truth, and so he's talking about the nature of words and the nature of reason and how they relate to reality. And he is a philosopher through and through. The primary interest of Philo for Christians is that he has this major being in his thought called the Logos, as you've already indicated. And the Logos for Philo is the expression of God's rationality that interacts with the world. It is the expression of God's life-giving power, his creative power, so that God himself doesn't interact with the world. But God's rationality expressed through the Word, or the Logos, is present in the creation. And so Philo is trying to explain how it is that a God who really doesn't have any interaction with the world, even causally, interacts with the world through his rationality. It's, it's kind of like the sun doesn't touch the earth, but it influences the earth through the light that comes from the sun. Think of that analogously. God influences the world through his rationality. It's, it like shines upon the world and pervades it. And so we have in Philo this attempt to express what is, I, I think, inherently a contradiction. And what he says, I think, is inherently contradictory, but it's because he's dealing with something that is inherent in the difficulty. So, for instance, when I use a word, the word I'm using isn't the thing itself. 
and the rationality I'm using, you know, we would say that the laws of the world participate in rationality and the world is rational in that sense, but we wouldn't say that the laws were created by human rationality because it was here long before that. So it's that kind of a thought world that Philo is really in touch with, but he also is a Jew. And he interacts with the Old Testament passages in a very creative way, in a way, as a matter of fact, that gets reflected in the second century Christian philosophers when we start talking about Justin Martyr and Athenagoras and we start talking about Irenaeus. We see a lot of the same Greek influences in their writings that we see in Philo. So what we see here is kind of the beginning of trying to make sense of the Old Testament in philosophical terms. Okay, so this sounds like he's very... Greek influenced, like, I mean, is he from Greece or he's from Alexandria, I guess you say? Yeah, he's from Alexandria, Egypt, but you have to remember that Alexandria, I mean, it's called Alexander because Alexander the Great conquered it. Right. <laughs> and, and so it is dominated by the Greeks, their thought, their culture. Okay. And would you say also, at least more than the other gospels, is John also kind of more of a Hellenistic type book than the other gospels, at least? John is Semitic, that is, it, it's in the thought world of first century Palestine through and through. And the way that Philo is thinking about the word is not the way that John thinks about the word, except to this extent. For John, the, all persons participate in the rationality of the word, and the rationality of the word is expressed in the light and in the intellect of individual human beings. And so John has this notion we have the concept of the word, of course, that originates from the Old Testament. The word debar in Hebrew means the word. And so God, I mean, oftentimes we see Old Testament passages speaking about the word and how the word of God is present in the world. And what we get in particular, you've got to remember that the Septuagint, the 70, is used by the earliest Christians, and it's in Greek. And it reflects this kind of Greek influence on the translation itself. So to that extent, yes, we're getting a mixing of the two worlds, but the Gospel of John is Semitic through and through. Okay. All right, so yeah, we've talked a little bit. I mean, you can, I, I say this sometimes, but I mean, if you want to know more about Philo specifically, then just look him up on Wikipedia and you can read all about his specific thing. But I want to focus now on the problems that you and others have seen in his doctrine, at least if you try to apply it to the Christian God specifically. You know, we stated this already, but I'm just going to read it. So it says, according to Philo, humans have access to God only through the Logos. So that sounds familiar because he's the Logos is a mediator between God and us. God's transcendence makes it impossible for him to interact directly with humans and prevents humans from having access to God's essence. So I would say a lot of traditional Christians would actually agree with that, you know, because God is this Greek ideal of the unmoved mover, the perfect, can't change, all that stuff, and so you would need a mediator because that thing is uncomprehendable by humans. Obviously, in Mormon thought, we don't have that view. We're going to talk a lot about the Logos being God's method for interacting with the world, and that's his method of creation and doing everything, and then we have to go through him. So, And we'll probably obviously develop this more later, but I just wanted to know if you can introduce right now, kind of on a Mormon view, why does God need a mediator in general, like because we have a God with a physical body. So, unless God is this transcendent, immaterial thing, why do we need a mediator? And again, I know that we're going to get into that, but maybe just kind of a teaser. 
Yeah, God doesn't need a mediator. He chooses to honor Christ as his son to share co-creative power with him, just as he is choosing to share co-creative power with us through Christ. This will make it, I think, stark. The reason that persons cannot interact with the one God in Philo's view is that he is merely an intelligible concept, and he's not really intelligible to the extent that we can rationally access him. But he is the source of all rationality. And the reason that we can't really interact with God is that this is not the kind of being that could possibly, as an ideal realization of human reason, that could interact with anything. The reason that God doesn't interact with humans in the Gospel of John has nothing to do with those considerations. It has to do with the fact that there's this hierarchy, God is holy, and unholy things can't be in God's presence or they get burned alive. And so it's a matter of sacredness and the holy value that exists in human beings per se. So it's a very different considerations as to why God is unaccessible. The Father is unaccessible to us because of the holy nature that he has and because he is so sacred that to be in his presence would be immediate death for us because he would burn us up uh, by metaphor. All right, well then, yeah, now I'm going to just focus on the problems in Philo's doctrine. So you say, I conclude that Philo's doctrine of the Logos is incoherent because he both affirms and denies that the Logos has properties of God. Of course, if God is beyond human intelligibility, then there is no concern about coherence because we cannot coherently speak of such a God in any way. But Philo maintained that all statements about the one God in Scripture are merely allegorical. The Logos functions as an analogy for God. But what Philo affirms of God as the Logos, he must deny to the Logos as mediator who creates and interacts with the world. So here's a great quote that kind of explains that by Daniel Boyarin, who I assume is someone that's intelligible on this subject. Daniel Boyarin is one, is one of the great Philo scholars and has written a great deal on Philo's thought. And so for him to kind of sum up and assess Philo is a real gift for us. Yeah, I really like the way he puts it. He says, it seems not to have occurred to any who hold this view that it is fundamentally incoherent and self-contradictory. Surely this position collapses logically upon itself, for if the memra, which... Yeah, it's Aramaic for logos. This is the Aramaic equivalent of the Greek term logos. Okay, so there you go. Memra just means logos, the word, same thing that we've been talking about. For if the memra is just a name that simply enables avoiding asserting that God himself has created, appeared, supported, saved, and thus preserves his absolute transcendence, then who, after all, did the actual creating, appearing, supporting, or saving? Either God himself, in which case one has hardly protected him from the contact with the material world, or there is some other divine entity, in which case the memra is not just a name. It follows, then, that the strongest reading of the memra is that it is not a mere name, but an actual divine entity or mediator. And so I guess the important thing to take away from here is he's, he's saying, I guess, another metaphor. So I guess the way Philo's saying it, let's at least this is how I pictured it in my head reading about it. It's like, let's say for just a word picture in your head, God is some formless cloud that's always changing form that can't be defined and it's, you know, huge, gigantic. And he interacts with the world by putting on kind of a expanding this cloud and then under he puts on a, a human puppet. And then he's walking around with this human puppet and being like, Hello, humans. I am representing this cloud. You can't interact with my real essence, but this is me interacting with you on your level. But if you think of it that way, that is just God interacting with the material world. He's just doing it with a tool. 
if you will. And so, yeah, like I said, that's incoherent. Or it can't be just this idea, meaning his word, like his actual spoken word. So he concludes rightly that, you know, to make sense of that, you would have to say there actually is another being, which, of course, is where we're going because we believe in Jesus. Any other insights into what he says there? Yeah, I mean, there is this quote in Philo's work, Quis Ferrerum Divinarum Hades, and what he says is, and I'm quoting Philo here, and the Father who created the universe has given to his archangelic and most ancient word a preeminent gift to stand in the confines of both and separated that which has been created from the Creator. The Logos neither being uncreated as God nor yet created as you, but being in the midst between these two extremities, like a hostage, as it were, to both, unquote. And so this just expresses very well the contradiction at the center of Philo's thought, because he's saying that this Logos is both uncreated and it's also created. Now, if what you're saying is that this is just rationality expressed in the world, and God is the source of that rationality, then it's really God himself who is affecting the world through his rationality, and there's no separate distinct being interacting. And so to speak of the Logos in this way is a being caught in the midst, like in purgatory between heaven and hell. And he's trying to have it both ways. I mean, he really is speaking as if though we're talking about an individual here who is separate and distinct, who can save the transcendent God from having anything to do with the material world, while at the same time saying that God is involved with the material world. So, I mean, this is kind of the central problem. But in speaking this way of the Lagos, I mean, we're toying with the idea of a second deity. In fact, and, and this is very significant. In another uh, Philonic work, he says this, Why is it that he speaks as if some other gods, saying that he made man after the image of God, and not that he made him after his own image? So he's, he's quoting and looking at Genesis 1 and 26 through 27, right? But he's saying God doesn't say, I made him in my own image. He's saying, I made him in our image. And so he goes on to say, Very appropriately and without any falsehood, was this oracular sentence uttered by God, for no mortal thing could have been formed on the similitude of the Supreme Father of the universe, but only after the pattern of the second deity. He uses here the Greek term tondutrontheon, which means literally the second God, who is the logos of the supreme being, since it is fitting that the rational soul of man should bear the type of the divine logos, since in his word God is superior to the most rational nature. But he who is superior to the logos holds rank in a better and most singular preeminence. And how could the creature possibly exhibit a likeness of God in himself. So he's saying, look, I've got to posit a second being here, a second God, that we could be in an image, because God can't be an image and can't have an image, and so of necessity I'm creating a second being. And that's kind of the way he's explaining himself, but he's clearly having it both ways. We have the second being who isn't God, and yet when he's talking about God's involvement with the world, he wants to say that there's only one God, there's not a second God. And so he's He's caught kind of on the horns of a dilemma in, in what he's doing. But the key, I mean, one of the reasons that he's of interest to anybody who reads the Gospel of John is not only that he speaks of Tondutron Theon, the second deity, he also talks of the Word and the real God in terms that are, are identical to the way that the Gospel of John spoke of the Word and the only true God. And so, in John, we get, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, the Word was with the God. Okay, now let me explain what that, that there's a difference between when John is referring to God, when he refers to God 
when he says, and the word was God, is simply theos. When he's speaking of the Father, he uses the term ton theos, the God. And this is exactly how Philo spoke. I mean, this is what Philo says. There is one true God only, but they who are called gods by an abusive language are numerous. Note he's saying it's abusive language, but they still speak of it that way. On which account the Holy Scripture on the present occasion indicates that it is the true God that is meant by the use of the article, the expression being, I am the God, hotheos. But when the word is used incorrectly, it is put without the article, the expression being, he who was seen by thee in the place, he's quoting again Genesis, not of the God, tolteon, but simply of God, theu. Um, and what he calls God is his most ancient word, not having any superstitious regard to the position of names, but only proposing one end to himself. So what we're seeing, the only true God is also a phrase that's used by John. It's used in John 17 and 3 to refer uniquely to the Father. And what he's explaining here is that when we use the term the God, we're referring to the real actual God. But by an abusive language, we refer to gods in the plural without the article. So we can speak of, of a being being a God or simply God without the proper article. And so we have this description and explanation given by a contemporary of the writers of the Gospel of John, explaining what the significance is of the way that John is using his language. And, and it's this kind of remarkable commentary that isn't really a commentary, because Philo is not addressing the Gospel of John and how the Gospel of John speaks. It just happens that the Gospel of John uses the terms in an identical way, not a similar way, an identical way. And so for any Johannian scholar, this is extremely significant. I want to emphasize that there's no direct evidence that Philo's writings were available even in Palestine during the time that the Gospel of John would have been written. But what we're dealing with is obviously a very similar way of talking about God and his logos, or the Word who is God, and the God who is the only true God. I just think that's extremely important. Okay. So, yeah, I'll just read these next two quotes, and they kind of transition into another section. So, we'll just talk about it. So, you say, the next statement in the prologue of John asserts that, like in Philo, that God created through the Word. In John 1, 3-4, says, all things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. So you say, like the rationality of the Logos in Philo that resides in all persons, the light of the Logos gives life to every person in John's prologue. Also like the Logos in Philo, the word in John is the agent of creation, the one who completes the creation. However, unlike the Logos in Philo, there is no sense in the prologue of John that the God the Father, is unable to touch the material world. So how do we then separate these out? Because it would seem, regardless of whether he had the writings of Philo... Let me clarify. I mean, John is not saying what you think he's saying. John is not saying that Christ or the Logos is the agent of creation or the one who causes creation to be what it is. What he's saying is, and the verb that he's using, means that he is the culmination of creation, the one who gives creation its reason for being. It's not merely that it's rational for it to be. The very purpose of all creation points toward the Word of God as its culmination and it, the fullness of its meaning. And that's what the Gospel of John is actually asserting. He's not asserting Christ was the guy who, who actually exerted the energy that created the universe. That's not what he's asserting. 
Alright, I mean, that's pretty much all I wanted to get into there before we move on. Next, we're going to have Jacob talk about the next section. Alright, uh, the next section is the Logos made flesh and the manifestation of God's glory. So we'll start out with your quote here. The uniqueness of John's view of the Logos is precisely that the Logos has been made flesh in a historical person, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the embodied Word still reflects the glory of the Father. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. All right, so um, obviously it's a little bit different in John's view than Philo had, because this is an actual person. Right, this is very significant, because the divine Word has been made flesh. In other words, the expression of the purpose of the being of the world is made flesh in Jesus Christ, according to John. Now, that's a far cry from what Philo had in mind. But the notion that a historical person could be the incarnate word or embody in flesh the rationality of God was just unthinkable. So we're dealing with this in a Christian recognition of Jesus Christ and not as a matter of philosophical engagement the way the Philo was working with it. There's something also that the Gospel of John engages in that is very important regarding the manifestation of God's glory. John does the same thing that we saw Paul and the other writers in Christianity doing. He goes out and begins to look for scriptures that refer to two divine beings or that refer to Yahweh or Jehovah in a way that they can be seen as referring to two divine beings because the name of Yahweh, the divine name, has been given to Christ. And so we see this very, very significantly, I think, I mean, there's this passage in John 12. It says, although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah said, now he's quoting Isaiah, he blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they may not see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and be converted and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Well, he's not talking about God. He's saying that Isaiah saw the glory of God. He's referring to Isaiah 6, whereas Isaiah sees the glory of God. Now, the reason this is significant is that the word that appears in Isaiah is Adonai, Lord. And so John is continuing this tradition that when the term Lord appears, it actually is the divine name that has been given as a gift to Christ. And so when he's referring to Adonai, he's actually referring to Jesus. And so when he's saying that Isaiah saw him or he saw the Lord, he's actually saying he saw Jesus. And so we see this continuation. In addition, in Ezekiel 1 and 28, he refers to Ezekiel seeing the glory of God. And when he's saying that he saw his glory, he's referring to Ezekiel 1 and 28. And again, what we have is he sees the glory. The glory is the glory of Yahweh. It's the divine name. And so John is continuing this very important tradition. Now, there's another tradition that's extremely important to notice as well. There's this notion that was present throughout almost the entire history of the Old Testament, that there was an angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and that when the angel of the Lord appeared, he appeared as if though he were God. He even uses the divine name, but he's not God himself. So, for instance, in Exodus 23 and and, uh, 20 through 21, he says, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and heed his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not forgive your sins, for my name is within him. It was based upon this scripture that they recognized that the name Yahweh had been placed in the angel of the Lord. 
so that the angel of the Lord bore the very name Yahweh. Well, they saw Christ as being that figure who bore the name of God in the very same way. And so the angel of the Lord became equated with Christ. And that's the way it is throughout the Gospel of John, as a matter of fact. The Gospel of John uses this kind of uh, textual interpretation to say that the Old Testament, when it's speaking about the angel of Yahweh, is actually talking about Jesus Christ. And so it's Jesus Christ who appears as a premortal being. He appears as the Lord and reveals himself when he appears as Yahweh. And so there's this other tradition that arises out of that, and that is very something that's something that's very prominent in John, that nobody has ever seen the Father, that whenever a divine being appeared in vision, it was actually the angel of the Lord or Yahweh appearing using the divine name that had been given to him and whose God name had been placed, and that is the divine being who is appearing. So nobody has seen the Father, they've only seen the Son, because it's the Son who appears in these visions. And so it is Jesus Christ that's being referred to. This is the way the Gospel of John presents it, okay? So it is Christ who has the divine name. This, of course, appears again when we get into John 8, where Christ three times refers to himself as I am, ego eimi in Greek. What he's saying is he's actually invoking the divine name. Remember, he's not actually speaking Greek. This is translated. He's speaking Aramaic. And when he says, I am in Greek, he is using the Eya, I am Yahweh. He's using the divine name. So he's referring to himself by the divine name when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood it. In the Gospel of John, it's very clear because they regard it as blasphemy that he is calling himself the divine figure who has the name of God in him. And he's the one who appears in the Old Testament. And the angel who appeared to Abraham was actually Jesus Christ. So it's the pre-mortal Christ who appears in these visions, not the Father. And nobody's ever seen the Father. And nobody can see the Father. When they see the Son, they see the Father. And why? Because the divine name Yahweh is in Jesus. It's been given to him as a gift. So this is an important continuity between the way Paul or the Pauline writers use the scriptures. And they do the very same thing, looking at the divine name in the very same way. That's how the early Christians in the late first century interpreted these writings, and that's the relationship they saw between the Father and the Son. It's the Son who interacts with the world. He's the one who appeared, not the Father, and the only being that has ever been really seen is Jesus Christ, not the Father. All right, yeah, that that gives a, a very good summary of the whole section here. And so it seems to bring another aspect of Christ being our mediator in that he, now he's mediating completely between us and God and that you know we can't even see God. He's mediating even the visions. The one that we see is actually Jesus, but he's been given the divine name as a gift, like you say, Yahweh. Yeah, and, and there is a definite tradition of mediator in the New Testament. Obviously, there are numerous scriptures that refer to Jesus Christ as a mediator. I mean, First Timothy 2 and 5 through 6, it says there's only one God. There's also only one mediator between God and the human race. But John doesn't use the term mediator. Instead, John treats Christ as if though he is an agent. In other words, in the ancient world, an agent is a person who is sent. It's like a marathon runner. I need you to deliver a message. And so the guy that you want to run, the messenger, runs to the king on the other side and says, Look, I am the king of the Egyptians. And I am going to wage war upon you. If you do not bow to my glory and my might, you will be crushed. Now, obviously, the messenger is not the king, but he's speaking in first person as if though he is. And that's exactly what's happening here. Christ, when he appears as Yahweh, speaks as Yahweh as if though he is that very being. And so they're appropriating this kind of agency instead of talking in terms of a mediator. Now, 
the category of mediator is totally appropriate because Christ is the mediator between us and the Father. But he's also the agent who appears for and speaks for the Father in the first person. Okay, so I guess the question comes to, if he's the agent in the name of Yahweh, is calling him Yahweh appropriate? Or is that really, you know, God is Yahweh and Christ is an agent who, you know, appears as Yahweh, as if he were Yahweh, but he's the divine messenger? Right, he is the divine messenger. He is the one who was sent. And the notion of one who is sent is precisely the notion of a messenger. He is sent to do the will of the Father. And so when he speaks, it's the Father's will that he's expressing, not his. And so we have this complete transformation. Is it appropriate for him to use the name Yahweh? What was given to him as a gift? And I think I could ask the very same question. Is it appropriate for you to use the name Osler? I mean, my name is Osler. What are you doing using my name? In fact, they called me Little Oss when I was a kid. And you were once little, and we could have called you Little Oss the very same way. So is it appropriate for you to use my name? It's the very same kind of thing, a notion of inheritance, a notion of shared family relationship, and a notion of honor. Not only are you honored by having my name to the extent I'm honorable at all, which of course is disputable, but I'm honored in you. The works that you do reflect back upon me. And so it's those kinds of notions that are at work also in this notion that he's using the very divine name Yahweh for himself. Well, can I jump in real fast? So before we move on, just since we have a you know mainly Mormon audience, you spoke a lot about this concept in John about no one being able to ever see the Father. And I know that came up on my mission a lot. They're like, well, right here in John, it says no one can see the Father. So your Joseph Smith must have been making stuff up because he said he saw the Father. What's going on there? So is John more of like a thought world? We're not saying that like, I know a lot of people give preference to the Gospel of John since it has the highest Christology, but... This is just a viewpoint, perhaps, or what would a Mormon take of those kind of things? Well, I mean, there's this contradiction inherent in John itself. It's not merely the case. He says nobody's ever seen the Father, but he's very aware of the numerous scriptures where Moses meets face-to-face and sees God. In fact, there's this term in, in Exodus 24 where 24 elders go up on Mount Sinai, and the very term used in the scripture means that they see God. The best translation would be, they gaze upon God. I mean, it is emphatic that that they are looking at God and they are perceiving God. And so, you know, they're well aware of these scriptures. It's not Yahweh, it's Elion that they're, they're seeing. I mean, it's very clear that people have seen God before. What they're doing is adopting this alternative explanation of the angel of God. And when they say no one has ever seen God... It's kind of like when Donald Trump says, this is the best there ever was. You shouldn't take him very literally. And it's the same thing that's happening here. Because they were very well aware that the Old Testament stated repeatedly that people had seen God the Father. And they had seen the Most High God. They had interacted with and had divine discourse with the Father. And so it's you have these two that exist side by side and the notion that no one has ever seen the father it really means that whenever you're interacting with the father you're also interacting with the father through the son as his agent they're both present which of course is going to give rise to the kinds of think problems that, that arise later in the trinity but they'll also have to be worked out, out logically which is the, you know what we'll talk about in the next chapter which is well how do you make sense of this notion that there is but one god but you've got a second god and ton in in Philo's words, who also is speaking. And keep in mind the reason the 
Philo's God isn't speaking with us is very different than the reason. John is very, very clear that the reason that people don't see the Father is because of lack of belief. But that doesn't mean that nobody can see the Father or that no one has ever seen the Father. Only those who have eyes to see and who believe can see the Father. They see the Father through Jesus Christ, which means that they see the Father. And so you have these two kinds of traditions that exist side by side. Okay, well, that's enough of a teaser to satisfy me for this moment, I guess. So go ahead on with the next section. All right. And it's more or less related because we've been talking about this, but it's Jesus as God's agent in the writings of John. And we'll go ahead and start off with your quote where first you say, there are at least two distinct ways that the Gospel of John can be interpreted regarding the relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. One approach compares Jesus to wisdom as a personified divine attribute of the one God, and such a view entails modalism because it identifies Jesus as merely a manifestation, solely a way of appearing, of the one God, the Father. However, the Gospel of John can also be read to maintain monotheism by subordinating Jesus to the Father and thus distinguishing between the Father and the Son in such a way that there are, in fact, two distinct divine beings. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about, I'll just expand just a bit, and that is, obviously, the categories of wisdom and logos and divine word are used from the Old Testament as a way of describing Jesus Christ in relationship to the Father. And in the Old Testament, wisdom is not really distinct from God. It's not a distinct being, though in later interpretations, the wisdom would become a distinct being from the Father. But it's important not to read the Christian mutation, not to read what is happening in Christian works and assume that they're reading the Old Testament in a way that ignores their Christianity, because they're not. The Lagos is very definitely a subordinate being. The Father is greater. The Father sends Christ, and the Christ prays to the Father, gives all glory to him, and recognizes that the Father is greater than he is. And so it's simply a mistake to conclude that all we're really reflecting here is a wisdom motif from the Old Testament. At least that's how I see it. So in addition to being God's agent, the glory of God functions as the honor that is conferred on the Son by the Father and is reflected back on the Father by the Son. How so? Okay, so the Father is honoring the Son by giving him his name, giving him a place at his right hand recognizing him as the powerful mediator between him and those that he deals with. But Christ is also glorifying the Father. Everything he does redounds to the glory of the Father. He gives him all glory. And everything that Christ does is to reflect the love of the Father and bring honor to the Father. So they're mutually glorifying in their relationship. All right. And um, let's see. I mean, I think this is more or less still just driving the point home, but I'll just go ahead and read the last part here. Christ is God because the Father honors him as the preeminent manifestation of God's glory. The perfect spokesman for God, the one who does the Father's works precisely as the Father commanded, the one who appears on behalf of the Father to represent him as his unique mediating agent. These categories of honor also play a prominent part in the controversies between Christ and the Jews related to his claims for his relation with God. Right. Remember what gets Christ into trouble in at least one of the arguments with the Pharisees in the Gospel of John is that he says, I and my Father are one. And they're looking at him and saying, well, what are you talking about? In another, it's, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And he's explaining basically he was the one who appeared to Abraham. And they're saying, well, you were just recently born. How can you possibly claim that? 
So what we're looking at are these categories of honor and shame. They're trying to take them literally and not seeing the metaphor of honor that is being used by Christ to explain his relationship with the Father. The writers of the Gospel of John show the Pharisees and the Jews, and, and they use the term the Jews, it's, you know, however anti-Semitic that may appear, talking about the Jews, making them intentionally obtuse to try to take literally what needs to be understood as a metaphor for something that points beyond itself, that is, to this culture of honor and shame in which the Father is honoring the Son and the Son is honoring the Father mutually. Excellent. There's a small section and then towards the end of the chapter here, and uh, Corey will go ahead and take us through that. All right, so the next section is titled Divine Agency and the Angelic Mediation in the Book of Revelation. So the Book of Revelation, as I mentioned before, is another Johannine text. And basically all we want to highlight here is that the angel that is leading whoever's you know, seeing this vision is coming in and they represent Christ. But the visionary tells us that the angel of the Lord came to him. However, the angel speaks in the first person as if that angel himself is Christ. Yeah, and here's the irony. So you have John explaining that whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's really Christ who's appearing because he has the divine name. Now we have in Revelation this further specification there's this angel who appears and speaks as if though he's Yahweh and Christ, but he's neither. And so let me give a couple of examples. So in Revelation 1, what you have is a visitation of what appears to be Christ himself. I mean, he appears and he says, basically, I am the first and the last. I am Alpha and Omega. But halfway through, he explains that he's not really Alpha and Omega. He's really the angel of the Lord. So what we have in verse 1 and 80 says, I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. But it's clearly the angel who is speaking as if though he were God. And he finishes up by saying, I am the first and the last, the one who lives. Once I was dead, but now I'm alive forever and ever. So it's clearly Jesus who is speaking. It's, it's the Christ, but it's really the angel. I mean, later on, the very same angel who is leading him in these visions John falls down to worship him, and basically he's saying, what are you doing, you idiot? I'm not God. Get up. <laughs> Quit worshiping me. I'm just your fellow servant. I'm like you are. You can't worship me. And so we get this kind of stark, all the way through, you've been calling yourself God, and you're speaking in the first person as if you're Jesus, and now you're telling me I'm an idiot for misunderstanding. And, you know, it's like, get up. Get off your knees. You're not understanding what's going on here. So I, I, this is just kind of an interesting revisioning, if you will, of the relationship between Jesus and the angels of God that appear. So Jesus is now a divine figure, and the angel of Yahweh is appearing on behalf of Christ, as if though he's Jesus himself, when in fact he's not. Right, and you just draw the parallel. You say the Gospel of John presents Christ as the one who appeared and who spoke in the first person as if he were Yahweh. And so we just can see in Johannian thought, this is a common theme that is later morphed into that. Anyway, so let's transition into the last section here. And so it's called Jesus's relation to the Father. It is imperative to see that Christ never calls monotheism into question by claiming to bear the divine name, perform divine prerogatives, or manifest the glory of God. Christ does not claim to be identical or equal to Yahweh. Rather, he is the agent of the one true God. Notwithstanding his claims to be the one seen in visions as Yahweh, to bear the divine name, I am, and to manifest God's glory to mortals, 
the question is never raised whether he claims to be a second god. Rather, the Gospel of John frames the dispute in such a way that Christ claims to be the divine agent who is subordinate to the Father. He is identified as God's divine agent by the works he does. The Gospel of John thus presumes the ancient view of a continuum of divinity. And I cut out a big thing here, but I just wanted that to spur into, if you could just kind of sum up. So, I mean, we've talked about the continuum of divinity in Hebrew thought. Is Are you saying it continues that exact same type of idea here? And how so? There is no bright line ontological distinction between the created order and the uncreated order. To call Christ the creator is not to say he's uncreated and everything else is created. That's not a distinction that is being made. And so the kind of ontological issues that arise later about whether something is created or uncreated and its ontological status simply isn't within the horizon of the discussion that's taking place in the Gospel of John. Rather, what the Gospel of John is addressing is the misunderstanding that arises because the Jews don't believe in Jesus. They cannot see his true relationship to the Father as being one with the Father and the ways that he is one with the Father or the fact that he's the only way back to the Father as the Father's agent. One has to go through Jesus to access the Father, because now, in order to be in the truly called people, the new Israel, one has to accept Christ as the Lord. And when I say Lord, I mean they have to accept him as the bearer of the divine name, Yahweh. And so that's essentially what the Gospel of John is asserting in this continuum view. But it's not only Christ who participates in this glory. All of the disciples are called and expected to share in this in glory. I'll just read the quote, but that is where I want to go to now. So you say, the relation of the Son to the Father is one of indwelling unity. And there was a big discussion before this quote, but we'll talk about it after anyway. So Christ is the Father's agent so fully that whoever sees him also sees the Father who is in him. The Father and Christ are related as one because they dwell in each other. And stunningly, in this Gospel of John, specifically chapter 17, that we're going to go over, Christ is in his disciples in the same sense that the Father is in him. And so, let's just, before we go into that, I guess, because the, the way you drive that home is by going over John 17. So, John 17 is known as the intercessory prayer, correct? Correct. So, when does this take place in Jesus' life, according to the book of John, at least? It appears to be before he is actually taken into Gethsemane. Jesus is with the disciples, and it may be that it's envisioning Christ in Gethsemane with the disciples, and he's offering up the inter intercessory prayer. But it's also outside of time, in a sense. I mean, this is not the kind of temporal event that he simply places occurring just this once, because Christ is actually, I mean, what happens is Christ is both already in the past He's in the present, and he's already projecting the future. And so there is this kind of, when I say timeless, I mean it's outside the normal time frame and outside the normal past, present, and future as it relates to when Jesus is a mortal. Because the writer of the Gospel of John has this additional perspective, and he's giving it to us. Okay. And so, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, so go ahead and read John 17 when you can. But here's the main points that it drives home, and you can kind of comment on this as we go if you want but all right so it makes the following claims one there is only one true god and that is the father you remember what it says in john 17 and 3 if you want to read that okay john 17 and 3 in the 
Uh, I'll read it in the KJV. Okay, and this is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The only true God is the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who is sent. And so the assertion that's being made in John 17 and 3 is that there is only one true God, and that is identified with the Father, and there is a second, Jesus Christ, who is the one who is sent by the Father. All right, great. And then two, the disciples receive eternal life as a gift when they believe in the one true God and also in Jesus Christ, whom the one true God has sent as his agent. And that's almost word for word of verses no, 6 through 19, I guess. Notice how important his name is in this. Again, he's the one who bears the divine name, and notice what's happening with the name as well as his glory. I have manifested your name. He's praying to the Father, and when he says your name, he's referring to the Father. I have manifested your name, he's referring to Yahweh, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice the use of the word here, because he's saying they, they've been faithful to me. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words. Notice again the use of the words here. Just as Christ is the word, he's now conveying those words. I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then he prays for them to come out of the world, that they will no longer be in the world. And everything that he gave him to speak, he spoke. And now the disciples embody the word as much as Christ embodies the words that they've been given. So it's this interplay. We're using these key terms in the Gospel of John again to convey what Christ is, is now being conveyed to the disciples. And the third claim is Christ possessed divine glory with the Father before the world was. Okay, again, John 17 and 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now the word that's given to them is going to go to the other believers. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. And so what he's saying at the beginning is that he was sent into the world, and he was essentially before the world. He says earlier, and this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So life eternal is to believe. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's in verse 5. So what he's saying is, before the world, I had a fullness of glory with you. And I have finished the work now that you sent me into the world to do. And to believe in me is to believe also in you. And that is life eternal. And life eternal is a technical term here. It means to have the very kind of life that God has. All right, great. And then the fourth claim is, as a mortal, Christ did not possess the same glory that he had previously. Right. What, he's, what he asserts in this is that the glory is returned to him so that the, wor- the glory that he had with him before the world is now being returned to him at this time because he's completed the work that the Father gave him to do. Okay, and then the fifth one is that Christ has glorified the Father in his mortal life by doing all that the Father gave him to do. 
Right. And so 24 through 26, and this will get into the last one too. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what he's saying is you've given me this glory now again that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And guess who I want to have it? I want my disciples to have it. Oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So notice what he's saying here. The world doesn't know the Father, but the world only knows the Father through me. And my disciples know me, and therefore they know the Father. And again, it's his name, and it's the name that is now that was given to Christ. I have declared to them your name. That name is now in the disciples because he's given them the name. And so the fullness of the glory that he had with the Father is now shared fully with the disciples. Right, and then the sixth claim is the Father therefore glorifies Christ with the same glory once again. Yeah, and that's what we've just seen, that he had this glory before the world was, and now this glory is being restored to him because he's completed the work that the Father gave him to do. Okay, then seventh, Christ in turn glorifies the disciples and brings them to the Father, just kind of like we talked about too. Yeah, so the very words that he spoke are now the words that they will speak, and, and they have the word in them. The very glory that he had with the Father before the world is now given to them as one in Christ as he's one in the Father. So they're also one in the Father in the same way that he is. All right, and then the eighth one is the disciples are therefore also glorified with the same glory. So that's pretty significant here as, you know, this whole book is going to show that this is showing humans receiving the same glory as Christ. Yeah, they're being Christified. The disciples are being Christified as the Son is being glorified and divinized by the Father. In other words, Christ is everything that the Father is. The disciples are everything that Christ is, and so the disciples are everything that the Father is. And you sum that up good with the ninth claim that the Father, the Son, and the disciples are all one by virtue of the indwelling glory that they share. And this refers back to the scripture. It says, you know, I pray that they may be one with me as I am with you. Yeah, and he prays that the same glory has disciples. So what we see here is a rather fully expressed notion of deification or theosis. The disciples are being made divine. They possess the word of the Lord. They possess the name that has been given to Christ, and they possess the same relationship to the Father, that is being one, that Christ has, so that the disciples are becoming everything that Christ is. And so we have this very complete notion of deification right here in John 17. All right, great. And so that is kind of the end of the chapter. And next chapter, we kind of shift gears and start talking about like the later developments of the Trinity. But I guess in summation of this Gospel of John, what's kind of the takeaway of like, what, what do we take away from John? Because I know a lot of people favor the Gospel of John because, again, it has the highest Christology. But it, I don't know, it just seems like a very different view. Should we, you know, favor this high Christology over the other views of Christ in the other Gospels, or is this extra enlightened, or should we just view this as kind of a different school of thought and one more different way of explaining Christ, or should we see, you know, I guess scholars see this more as like, oh, well, these are obviously, you know, after a hundred years of the story of Jesus being inflated so much, then like, wow, look at him, look at him now, like this is more than was ever intended in his day. And obviously you don't have that view. I'm just saying that's what some people say. So how do you place 
John in the whole scope of things, I guess. Well, two things. The Gospel of John, at, at the beginning, who Christ is and the revelation is more opaque. And as we go through the Gospel of John toward the end, especially when he pulls his disciples and he has a conversation only with the disciples, it's no longer with the Jews who don't understand and don't want to believe. The revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is becomes magnified and becomes more intimate as, as we go further into the Gospel of John. And what we should take from the Gospel of John is this. When a person who is a true Christian sees Christ, if Christ is giving water to a woman at a well, he's not merely giving her something to drink. He's giving her eternal life. If Christ is giving bread, he's not merely feeding people. He is giving them his very flesh and embodying himself within them. So I could go on and on because this is the way the Gospel of John is presented. One who has eyes to see sees not merely a human being in history. One sees Christ the way that the writers of the Gospel of John in this community saw him. They see the true meaning of what he's doing. They don't reduce him to just another human being going through history. They see the true meaning of the acts that he has. And they see it with the hindsight as, you know, after the resurrection has occurred, and the more complete revelation has been understood, the synoptics are writing from the perspective of people who were with Christ at that historical moment, and they don't get it. They don't understand anything. You know, sometimes they'll explain in the narrative, this is what it meant, but man, they didn't know it at the time. You don't get that in the Gospel of John. Instead, you get a more complete revelation of who Jesus is as the narrative progresses. And so the Gospel of John presents itself as a revelation of the true nature of who Christ is. And remember, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, look, they didn't remember this all of the time, but it was brought to their recollection through the Spirit. And so this is the way that we see Christ when we're seeing him in the fullness of his complete ministry through the eyes of the Spirit. That's what the Gospel of John is. So this is a very Christian gospel that is not just giving us a, the historical background of Jesus. It is, as we go along, revealing Jesus to us and asking us to participate in the same kind of divine insight that the disciples of Jesus Christ had and, and are expected to have. Okay, and um, it's obviously a very influential book on the way that Christianity panned out from here, and so we'll get into more of that next time. But I think for now, we're good to go. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.